Well, good morning. Good to see you guys this morning, and um, good to be in the book of Philippians again, if I can get my Bible turned the right way. Um, I used to coach uh, an event in Wisconsin for high schoolers uh, called Forensics, and it's kind of this competitive speaking thing that, that we did. And one of the things that I always told students was never start a speech or a performance off by apologizing. Um, that just kind of like sets everybody up to expect very little from you. In fact, they expect the worst from you, and your scores will often reflect that. Well, I want to apologize this morning. Um, <laughs> I, I have wrestled with this text uh, for the week, and... Um, it's, it's been a, a bit difficult, and let me kind of explain why. If you've heard me preach before, what I often like to do is I like to find an image or a metaphor within the text and just do my best to capitalize, some might say overuse, that image or metaphor as I preach that passage. Well, in preparing to preach Philippians 3, 17 to 4, 1, which is where you can turn now, I found myself with a major dilemma in front of me. It stymied me for the better part of the week. Because in these five verses, Paul just throws in a host of metaphors and mixes them up in a way that Mrs. Green, my high school English composition teacher, would send it back with a note that says, just pick one. Just pick one. But Paul, in this little passage here, just pulls metaphors from all over the place. And I didn't know what to do with that. So let me read the text, and I want you to kind of see some of these metaphors as we get into it, and then we're going to examine it, and um, I think it'll be helpful for us as we, as we dive in. Here's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brothers, and by extension, sisters. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we ask that your spirit would open our eyes to your word so that we might see the glory of your son and the glory of your plan and walk in it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, you guys remember what a metaphor is, right? Yes. <laughs> or one of you does. Uh, if not, uh, Mrs. Green would be very saddened by the rest of you, so let me give you a definition. A metaphor is a figure of speech in which a word or a phrase is applied to an object or action to which it is not literally applicable, okay? Uh, if, if you've ever read the book series to your children, Amelia Bedelia, this is a great example of how to understand or not understand metaphors. If you have never read the book series to your children, 
do so. It's a riot. It's a lot of fun. And um, I, th- I think we still have some in our basement in a box somewhere. But uh, sometimes metaphors are used, and we know we're not to take that literally. That's not literally what the person wants to be said, even though we have no idea what the word literally even means anymore. But a metaphor there is a symbol that is not literally applicable, but is meant to uh, be applied in a different way. So, for instance, you see this in sports, and many of you watched the Super Bowl last week, and so you'll te- you hear, hear the coach saying, hey, we need to get on the same page. They don't mean that literally, like, here's a page, all the team get on that same, that just, that's ridiculous, right? And, like, you can think about this just through sports metaphors in and of themselves. Leave it all on the court. No, please, do not leave it all on the court. Don't do that, actually. Don't take that literally. Um, he played his heart out. I mean, <laughs> can you imagine if that one was, like, that, that's not a good thing. That's really bad. Um, or keep your eyes on the ball. I, these are interesting metaphors. We'll actually see one similar to that in this text here, because Paul just throws in a lot of mixed metaphors. And you heard them in here. There's a metaphor of walking or standing in verses 17, 18, and then in chapter 4, verse 1. Walk, walk, stand. Paul's not literally speaking of that. He's using that image to describe our life in Christ and our walk in this world. It's used twice in contrasting ways. There is the metaphor of belly in verse 19 which I think is, I just cannot get over this word, because belly to me just sounds like something that three- and four-year-olds use and not adults, doesn't it? Like, my belly hurts. You don't, eventually, you graduate to saying stomach, don't you? It, there's some, I don't know where the age is, but apparently it's not there yet in this text. Um, and I struggled with this because it would have been a golden opportunity to use a very interesting slide on this one. <laughs> I decided not to. Uh, another, illustrate, or another metaphor that Paul uses is the idea of citizenship. You see it in verse 20, another metaphor that he throws in there. It's not meant to be literal, but it's, it's an idea. It's a concept. It, it, it helps people frame what Paul's talking about. And in this context, it would have been very important because the city of Philippi was a Roman colony, um, and the people, many of the people of Philippi were actually Roman citizens despite not living in Rome proper. And the population of Philippi would have been divided between Roman citizens and non-Roman citizens. The Roman citizens would have had all kinds of rights and privileges given their status as Romans. And the non-citizens would have not had those privileges. And so this idea of citizenship, which we'll see in a little bit as we examine the text, is another great metaphor but a mixed metaphor. It doesn't quite fit with belly and walk in a neat way. The final one that I, I like in this, and there's, there's other ones that are subtle in here, is in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, you are my crown. That's a great one, isn't it? It's a great line. Maybe some of you used it on Valentine's Day. Just this beautiful, affirming, affectionate term to use if you want to make someone feel good. You can just hear the Philippines like, oh man, where is crown? That's that's awesome. That's awesome. He loves us, doesn't he? Well, because Paul has already offended Mrs. Green, I want to add another image here to the pile and just heap it on, go big or go home. And I want to talk about marshmallows, okay? <laughs> not in the text. You don't see it in the text. You're not going to find it in the Greek even if you read the Greek. But I want to talk about marshmallows. We're going to come back to marshmallows later in this sermon. 
1972, a Stanford researcher by the name of Walter Mischel conducted what has become known as the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. True thing, you can look it up. Um, and essentially what, what, um, what he did was he took a marshmallow and, don't get too excited because I'm not handing them out, okay? <laughs> took a marshmallow, put it on a plate in front of a five-year-old and said, there's some toys to play with. If you can wait for 15 minutes to eat that marshmallow, I will give you more marshmallows. If in the next 15 minutes you eat that marshmallow, that's the only marshmallow you're going to get. Now, the clock starts now, you have 15 minutes. I mean, that, that's, that's, first of all, I don't like marshmallows. I think they're gross, so it's very easy for me to leave this up here. Some of you are like, oh, that looks really, really good. Look at that sugar and air there. Um, <laughs> marshmallows are, the only good way a marshmallow is to be eaten is if it's caramelized on top of a sweet potato casserole. Other than that, marshmallows are worthless. All right, true fact, true story. True. Um, but anyway, you put that marshmallow in front of a five-year-old, and he did this with numerous five, three to five-year-olds. Put that marshmallow in front of a five-year-old, and that's, first of all, this is 1972. I don't think ethics boards at universities would allow this anymore because it would be conceived as a form of torture for five-year-olds. But it was an interesting experiment. Some did wait it out, and they received more marshmallows, and life was good for them. Some did not wait it out. They only got the one marshmallow, and they may have been happy with that. But there were some that could wait and some that could not. And the interesting thing about the experiment was they, they kind of tracked some of these kids through life. The ones who could delay their gratification, in general, were healthier and more successful and had higher SAT scores. The ones who went straight for the marshmallow, like some of you are tempted to do right now, were generally unhealthier, less successful, and scored lower on their SATs. Now, you can read into that, and there has been all kinds of writing around the Stanford marshmallow experiment. Some of the people have tried to debunk it. Others have redone it in different ways. Um, I'm not a, a researcher like that. I can't get into the details of it, but it, it's an interesting experiment doesn't work for me. Um, it would work better for me if it was a bacon experiment. But um, I couldn't. In fact, I actually made bacon this morning after writing this sermon. I was like, I need a couple pieces of bacon here. Um, so I'm not very good with delayed gratification. But keep this idea of delayed gratification in your mind as we enter our text. Because I think it's something that, that fits our text together and helps us understand this passage. And I'm just going to leave that marshmallow up here to help you guys think about that, okay? This idea of delayed gratification will set up the major contrast in this passage. We'll take a few detours, but we'll come back to our bacon and marshmallows. So, chapter 3, verse 17, as Paul starts to wind down this letter, we're going to turn the page now into the final chapter of the book of Philippians. As Paul starts to wind down his letter to the Philippian church, he's going to get very practical. He's going to get very direct about some of the themes that he's been speaking of and talking about, themes of unity and joy, um, themes of humility, service, those sorts of things. He's going to now be very direct. He's going to be so direct that he's actually going to call out specific people in chapter 4 that need to adopt what he is preaching here in this passage. 
Their names will then forever be etched into the annals of church history, people wondering if Yodia and Syntyche ever made up. We don't know. We don't know. Philippians is a different letter than some of the other letters that Paul's has, Paul has written. Letters like Ephesians, if you study the book of Ephesians, you notice that there's a, a construction to Ephesians that can be clearly discerned. Ephesians can essentially be divided in half, chapters 1, and, 1 to 3, chapters 4 through 6. And in chapters 1 to 3 of the book of Ephesians, Paul builds this whole theological foundation about the triune God and salvation through Christ and the, the mission of the church. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he applies that great theology to the home, to the workplace, to the church, to all these different scenarios. It's this wonderfully constructed, neatly divided letter. Philippians doesn't quite fall into that category, and I've, as, I've, as we've studied it, I just have noticed that more and more. It doesn't quite fit that, 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 that construction that Ephesians has. Philippians starts deeply personal, and it doesn't stray far from that. The relationship between Paul and the Philippian church is thick throughout the letter. There is a deep affection and concern that Paul can't detach from to speak about just general theological principles or truths. Even in the middle of the book, he doesn't just speak in general principles. He's using names. He talks specifically about Timothy and Epaphroditus, who he hopes to be able to send to Philippi in his stead while he's imprisoned. And so while Ephesians can be neatly divided, Philippians just doesn't quite have that nice structure. It's, a, it's almost like a conversation. It just flows a little bit more personally. The concern and the personal nature of the relationship is simply soaked into the passages of this letter. And you can feel it at the end of this passage that I read earlier in particular. Chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to the language that Paul uses after after some of the conclusions, he says, Therefore, my brothers, term of affection, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. And then he tacks on another one, my beloved. I mean, it's just, it's just there's this command in the middle of it, stand firm thus in the Lord. It's a great command, important command, one of the central pieces of this text, and an important one, but if you remove that command from all of the language around it, the terms of affection and the, 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 the love that Paul has for these people, it's, it reads differently. If you got to chapter 4, verse 1, and Paul says, therefore, stand firm thus in the Lord, okay, good, true, right? But you surround it with all this joy, crown, brothers, beloved, love, long-for language, and you can just feel Paul's heart in this, this heart of affection and love for this church. The sentence itself feels awkward at the end, almost because he addresses the church twice. Once he says, my brothers, and at the end he adds on another address, my beloved. And he just keeps on the affection, heaps it on, and it almost seems like he can't finish the command without reminding them again of his love for them, my beloved. And it's out of this affection and concern and because of his care for this fragile church that is coming apart a little bit that he has to address the threats to this church's health. We've seen it in the last few passages. Nate's covered some of those threats earlier that Paul has worked through. 
But in all of this, you can hear that Paul wants to pull them to a spot that he has found. Paul has got somewhere. He's figured something out. And because he loves this church so much, he wants them to see and experience what he knows and sees and experiences in Christ Jesus. Here's how Paul says it throughout Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a profound statement and not an easy one to state. Chapter 3, verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. A few verses later in verse 12, he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And then in verse 14, but one thing I do, one thing, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now remember Paul's situation. He's under house arrest. He's waiting for a trial. He's expecting to be released, but it's a bit unsure. There's no schedule. You just kind of wait it out. He's desperately concerned about churches he loves because he's getting reports from guys like Epaphroditus that churches like Philippi are struggling a bit. There's division in the church. People are arguing. There's some false doctrine that's coming in. Paul's concerned, but he can't go there. And while he calls the church to stand firm in the Lord, he also surrounds that command, not with an assumption of just a stand firm with a stiff upper lip. Dig your heels in, church. That's not what he's saying here, but with the assumption of a smile. Because throughout the book of Philippians, there's this language of joy. Joyfully stand firm. Rejoice in all things. In all things. It's a happy confidence that Paul has found in Jesus Christ, a joyful resolve that he has found in Christ, as you saw in those verses. And now he wants the the Philippian church, see what we have in Christ. I desperately want you folk to see the beauty and joy that we have in Jesus. And this is astonishing because Paul is in prison and he's talking about joy. The Philippians are generally impoverished and he's talking about joy. How can they be this joyful when life is hard and bleak? Well, perhaps that attitude is best found in the most famous section of this whole book, chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. That's where he's at right now. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You hear it there, right? Paul has learned something. He has discovered something of incomparable value, satisfaction, and contentment in Christ that leads him to joy despite being under arrest. And he desperately wants his friends in Philippi to find this as well. That end desire is why he speaks with such directness and caution in our passage this morning. He's concerned about them. And so his call first in verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I've found something. I've discovered something in Christ, and I want you to know the depths and beauty of this. But let me take a step back from that 
and say there's another thing happening here that I think is important to mention in the text, even though it's not the main point of the text. One thing that sticks out in this passage that Paul wants to communicate to the Philippian church is this. You're not alone. You're not alone in following Jesus. There's two ways that that sticks out. First, Paul will give them an invitation. Join in following me. It's a collective phrase there. Join in following me. Let's get together and do this together. And then throughout the passage, he uses plural language. Us, our. Those kind of uh, pronouns are used because Paul's speaking to a group of people. We're not alone in this walk with Christ. We're not alone in following Christ. We're not alone in imitating So rather than saying simply, you guys, you, 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 go do it, go do it, go do it, he says, imitate me, join in following these examples. And here's the truth, is we need exemplary lives, although they're often, well, although they're always imperfect, apart from Christ. Paul has given us these examples in himself, in Timothy, in Epaphroditus, and in Jesus, we need exemplary lives to follow. We need people to say, hey, I've been reading the Bible and it's just coming alive. Would you join me in this? I want you to see what I'm seeing in Scripture. We need people to say, I, I, I'm discovering prayer as a, as a means of communicating with God that is just rich. Would, can we pray together? Can we get people to pray together? Can I help you learn how to pray more? Here's something that's helped me in my prayer life. Here's what Help me fight greed or anger or lust and how I'm finding contentment in Christ. We need people to pull us into Christ. And Paul is saying, I've found something. He's not going to say, he's, he says, he's the chief of sinners, remember? He says, but I found something. I want you to find this too. We tend to make the spiritual disciplines solitary activities. So every morning, get up, read your Bible by yourself. Chapter a day, keeps the pastor away. Go pray somewhere. Um, actually, it doesn't, I don't think, so uh, don't quote me on that one. Go pray by yourself. Do all this stuff by yourself. And I just think that, that idea of this individualistic spiritual discipline, there's a place for that. And I, I love to read the Bible. And I love to pray. But it's not how these disciplines are usually conceived of in the New Testament. They're usually meant to be communal. They're meant to do this together. Join, join, join. Let's do this together. Let's do this together. Read the Bible with people. Pray with people. Be with people. There's a host of people in this room that want you to find joy and peace in Christ. So join up. We've got lots of opportunities, and there's more that could start. Let's do this together. Christian living is more about join in rather than go do. There is the go do, don't, don't get me wrong on that, but it's a community. We are, not meant, we are meant to be a communal people learning from each other, following those who are ahead of us, encouraging those who are struggling, and welcoming those who are new. Now you can read this verse, verse 17, and say, Paul kind of sounds haughty here though, doesn't he? He sounds a little, you know, imitate me. Um, I need everyone to act like me, talk like me, walk like me, dress like me, think like me. That doesn't seem very humble, Paul. Aren't you calling for humility, and yet you want everybody to be like you? There's a version of Christianity that, that has that concept of just do these things like we're supposed to do them. 
Um, way back in the early 80s, Steve Taylor, a Christian music artist, wrote a song called I Want to Be a Clone, which um, if you go back and listen to it, just sounds really dated. But um, I'm really dated in many ways as well. So one of his lines in here, he's just making fun of kind of the assembly line idea of Christianity. You come to faith and then you've got to look like this, act like this, drink like this, talk like this, all this kind of stuff. And his line is, so now I see the whole design. My church is an assembly line. The parts are there. I'm feeling fine. I want to be a clone. And Taylor's very... Um, sarcastic in many of his songs, and they're brilliant as well. But that's not what Paul's going for. Just look like this, do this, act like this. That's not what he's saying. He's not trying to make many Pauls here, okay? He's not trying to do that. Paul has found joy and satisfaction in Christ, and he wants others to find that as well. He's coming back from this journey and saying, guys, I found something. You have to see this. You have to see this and experience this. This is amazing. It's good. So come, join me. Let's go find this and see this and savor this and enjoy this together. That's what Paul's saying here. Can we be people like that? Paul expands his initial encouragement and says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So it's not just Paul even here. It's Timothy. It's Epaphroditus. It's perhaps others. Some older, some younger. One an apostle, one a pastor, another, probably not either of those things. Just a guy, Epaphroditus, who loves Jesus and serves him. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So, church, let me just give you a couple of encouragements off this first verse, and then we'll actually get into the text, that, the meat of the text here. Number one, find people you can imitate. Find people you can imitate. Number two, find more than one person to imitate. Seriously. <laughs> because, sadly, some will fail you. I have a long list of pastors and men who have discipled me who have fallen. And I'm thankful for guys like Matt Baker who led me to Jesus and still leads me to Jesus. But we need a community of people. We need us rather than just one person. Find more than one person to imitate. Make sure that they're leading you toward Christ and not towards themselves. Make sure they're leading you toward Christ and not themselves. And then yourself, become a person worth imitating. Become a person. You can say to your kids or to the little ones down that hallway. Do you guys know about Jesus? Join me. Let's follow him together because it's good. It's good. It's good. There's something here. So, two initial applications that aren't the main point of the text but are incredibly important truths to remind ourselves of. First, know that you are not alone. Second, don't let others go it alone. Some of us, some of us, disclaimer, uh, some of us do occasionally need some space, so let's not get into smothering on this one here. Some of us need some space from time to time, but we all need each other. I'm deeply thankful for a community here with godly examples that I can follow. Well, why do we need godly examples to follow, you might ask? I mean, I can kind of figure it out on my own, right? I'm a smart person, disciplined person. Why do I need a godly example? Verse 18 now. For many, many, not just some, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end 
destruction. Their God, their belly. They glory their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul says many are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul's not just saying, I have enemies. Do <laughs> you notice that here? He'll, he'll talk about that. There are people who oppose Paul all over the Mediterranean world in that day. But Paul's saying there are enemies of the very cross of Jesus Christ, the thing that saves us and frees us, people are rebelling against. The cross saves us. That's where our salvation is. That's where we are reconciled to God through Jesus' sacrifice, his death, his resurrection. The cross saves us. We don't save ourselves. Therefore, we don't serve ourselves. We are saved by grace, and we live for something greater, Jesus' glory and fame. The cross saves us and frees us from our obsession with ourself. And so, to live as if either we are our own Savior, or if everything is about us, it makes one a despiser of the cross of Jesus Christ. It makes you an enemy of the cross. Now, you know, Paul doesn't pull punches. He doesn't soft-pedal things. He likes people to hear it straight. Self-dependence makes you an enemy of the cross of Christ. An enemy. And Paul is going to be very brief, very stark, and very poignant in his warning here. And the, the, the language reads almost like a staccato-like, verse 19, it reads almost like a staccato-like, I don't know if that's staccato or not, but that's what I'm going with there. He says, their end, destruction. Their God, their belly. Their glory, their shame. Their minds set on earthly things. He doesn't elaborate, so I won't elaborate too much here. He just wants people to know the enemies of the cross of Christ are headed towards destruction. They're following the wrong thing. And it's evil. Living for yourself leads to destruction. Commentator J.A. Machier says this, the warning here is not against particular sins, but against the underlying sin of pandering to self. If you've been following along with Philippians, you've seen that underlying theme of pandering to self. It's another warning against the me monster. Paul has earlier called the church outside of themselves. He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Chapter 2, verse 3. The alternative to this leads to shame and destruction, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 19. There's always a tendency to want to read a verse like this and then just kind of point out, look at our culture. <laughs> you know, look at them. They glory in their shame. It's not hard to do. It's not hard to do. Temptation is to enjoy pointing out other people's sin or cultural idolatry, but don't let this text get away without letting it expose your own tendency to pander to yourself. We all worship things apart from Christ and are tempted to place ultimate value on things that Christ has given us as gifts and therefore turn them into idols. The obvious one in this text is food. <laughs> Their God, their belly. But you could apply that to sex, to championships, to celebrities, and to a host of other things that we worship above Christ. These things are all good in their place. They're all good gifts from God, but when they become ultimate, 
They become idols that we worship and they lead to destruction. Destruction. Enjoyed in their right context, their gifts that we receive with joy and placed above Christ, they lead to destruction. Throughout the scriptures, God's people are urged to take a long view of things. Nate read earlier Psalm 73, and after a sort of spiritual crisis, Asaph, the psalmist in that passage, finds hope in considering the end of all things. The wicked will fall, God will prevail, and Asaph will be with God. The wicked might have their day of glory, but it's temporary, Asaph learns in Psalm 73. In Matthew 6, Jesus warns against hypocritical religious practices done to impress others. Sure, you might get some, some uh, admiration, uh, admiration, some fame for your spirituality. You know, your Aunt Janice might say, oh, he's such a good boy, something like that. But the God who sees everything will not reward your posturing, your spiritual posturing. The reward comes from those, for those who humbly follow. You have to keep the long view in mind. And the whole Bible, I think, can be seen as this pull towards thinking through the big picture, taking the long view. There's something bigger going on than what you want inside your belly right now. I know it's getting close to lunchtime, so that's a little hard to say. We even get a taste of that in this text, don't we? There's something bigger going on, and Paul will immediately move right into that in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. Isn't that just a great contrast? Their end, destruction. Their God, their belly. Their minds set on earthly things. Their glory, their shame. But our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. We don't have to worship our lowly bodies. They're going to be transformed to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There's something bigger going on here than simply pandering to our immediate earthly desires. There's something better, Paul is saying. There's a better way, and that's to fix your eyes on examples that ultimately lead you to Jesus. So while Paul is brief in the earlier description and stark in his earlier description of the destruction of the enemies, his his description of our citizenship here swells up. It gets larger and grander. Paul can't help but tack on phrases. He does this all the time in his letters. He starts, it almost seems like he means to just say Jesus and then just like, who did this and this and this and this and this and keeps expanding it because he's consumed by the glory of Christ. The attention in this passage is meant to bring us towards verse 21 in what we have in Christ. So while living for self leads ultimately to destruction, verses 18 and 19, living for Christ leads ultimately towards transformation. Transformation, because we are citizens of a greater kingdom. You may feel out of place here, but you're part of something greater. You are a citizen of heaven. And the language that Paul uses, Savior, Lord, those were words that were used to describe Caesar back in Paul's day. People waited for Caesar's salvation. They worshiped Caesar as Lord. He was the one. Paul said, no, no, no. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is our Savior. We're part of the kingdom of heaven. We're part of something greater, even though it doesn't look like it now. 
Roman citizens who lived in Philippi were part of something greater, even though it wasn't fully realized in their present situation. They weren't in Rome, but they were part of something greater. And so while others worship their bodies, in verse 19, our ultimate hope isn't in the immediate satisfaction of our desires, but in an ultimate, eternal transformation. Now, at this point is when you start to take a step back and say, you know, it doesn't take long to understand the fragility and impermanence of our bodies, right? We know this. I went to the doctor a couple weeks ago for my annual physical, and he said, these numbers are too high, these numbers are too low, and, uh, you know, is there any, anywhere that it hurts? And I could tell at that point that he was not paid by the hour, that he was a salaried employee, because, I, you know, I'm 48 years old. I can just start here and say, this hurts, this hurts, this. I don't know why this hurts. The other day I just woke up and my knee hurt, for the, and it's fine now, but it just hurt all day. I don't know. Our bodies just deteriorate, some faster than others, Right? That's the fact here that our bodies break down. These are impermanent things. So why make them your God, Paul says? Why make them your God? We worship bodies in various ways in our culture and in our minds, you know, whether it's the guys standing in front of a mirror at the gym for hours on end or the person who eats ice cream cone after ice cream cone after ice cream cone, just worshiping their body and giving sacrifices to their body or those who try to defy death and age and ignore the fact that our bodies are in decline. Their God is their belly. Here's the fact. Some of you are just starting to realize this. Some of you haven't realized it yet. Some of you are well into realizing it, that your body will break down. It is an impermanent thing. You have a responsibility, though. Steward what God has given you. Take care of it. But your lowly body is not your ultimate joy. Praise God for that. Amen. Your lowly body is not your ultimate joy. It is a gift to be used, but it will one day be transformed into something so much better as we are eternally united to Christ. I haven't always thought through this, and so I came across a passage by a guy named Murray Harris who explains some of this transformation, and I thought this was helpful. He says, Paul is saying then that in place of an earthly body that is always characterized by physical decay, indignity, and weakness, all things that I can relate to, the resurrected believer will have a heavenly body that is incapable of deterioration, beautiful in form and appearance, and with limitless energy and perfect health limitless energy like what would oh man that's just i have no idea what that would be once he experiences a resurrection transformation man will know perennial rejuvenation since he will have a perfect vehicle for god's deathless spirit a body that is invariably responsive to his transformed spirituality i think sometimes we lose the beauty of this hope that we have in transformation the beauty of that. And so let's go back to the marshmallow experiment. You guys remember it, right? Some of you have been waiting, hoping that I maybe give out marshmallows. I'm not going to because I have no idea how old this one is. But if you remember, the result is the ability to delay gratification overwhelmingly indicated future success in health and career. But we are not people that like to delay gratification, right? We want to spend instead of save. We want to eat 
more than we need. We want to take more than we give. We look for quick entertainment rather than a slow enjoyment of God, his creation, his word, and the gospel. Our appetites, our bellies, have become our God. But this is so unsatisfying and temporary. So unsatisfying and temporary. They're going to break down. It's not ultimately satisfying. You know when you get home from work, maybe you get home at like 5 o'clock, dinner's going to be at 7, say. There's a temptation to go for that immediate gratification. Find the bag of chips and just... Because that's, oh man, it's delicious. But it's just gross afterwards, and it's not satisfying. Rather than waiting, waiting for that dinner that's prepared and carefully constructed or working on helping prepare that dinner, just enjoying this beautiful, satisfying thing. We want the bag of chips rather than the nice dinner. We don't like to wait. We don't like to wait. And Paul's saying here, that's the problem with our spiritual life. Because we are waiting for Jesus, and he is better than what the world has to offer. Paul, in this passage, says that life in Christ involves waiting. And we struggle to wait. We think the immediate and the instant is of more value. Our God is our belly. We love what's in front of us more than what God promises down the road. We are voracious consumers. We do not want to wait. The marshmallow in front of us is better than marshmallows later. The bacon in front of us is better than more bacon later. The sin in front of us now seems better than the delayed joy of seeing Jesus, being transformed by him and being with him as all things come under his rule. And Paul's saying, it's not true. Jesus is better. We've got something better coming in Jesus. We have something better right now in Jesus. So, remember all of Paul's affection around that passage. His plea is built out of that affection. He's discovered true joy in Christ. He's seen people follow false idols, pandering to yourself and the resulting conflict that comes from a community of selfish people is rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul says, fight for joy in Christ. Stand firm. Dig your heels in joyfully together. Together. Collectively. In the end, Paul is asking us to take a broader perspective, to think about the long-term goal. There's a lot of ways to to do this. I, I was thinking about this as a, I kind of got on a YouTube spiral. I usually do a couple times a week, get on a YouTube spiral, and you just kind of end up watching videos that you're like, wow, this is weird. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. Um, I, I was watching babies take their first steps for some reason. I don't know where it started and how it got there, just some weird trail down the YouTube road. But, I mean, they're hilarious, right? And those of you who have kids can remember it. When babies take their first steps, where are their eyes at? Almost, I think without almost any exception, they're not looking at their feet, summoning up the willpower to like, okay, move this foot like that. But no, when babies are learning to walk, their eyes are up on dad or mom across the room and they kind of do the Frankenstein like thing, right? They just, they, they keep their eyes on that long-term view of I want this, this ability to walk that gets me to a prize. Mom, dad, food, whatever it is, the dog. I, there's something out there that I want to enjoy. And so their eyes are lifted up and they joyfully venture forward. Contrast that with 
someone who has just had a knee or hip replacement surgery, when they're relearning to walk, where are their eyes at? Almost always down at their feet. Now, first of all, if you're like 95 years old and just had hip replacement, don't start trying to do a baby walk thing here. That's going to end badly. I'm not trying to make that big of a contrast here. But there's something joyful in getting our heads up and on the ultimate prize, isn't there? And that's what, that's what that little infant there, there's that smile. That's, that's what Paul wants for people. That's what life in Christ is like. It's that joy because we have Jesus and he is going to transform these broken, lowly bodies into something great as we sit at his throne for eternity in joy, worshiping him. So lift your eyes up. See yourself in Christ. See the hope that you have in him for eternal transformation rather than temporary, unfulfilling idolatry. Be joyful, expectant people who know the hope they have in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, too often we look down at our feet and struggle rather than looking up to you. So would you lift our eyes to the beauty of Christ this morning, this afternoon, this week, and throughout our lives. May we joyfully stumble through this life with a smile on our face because we see the joy of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.